Good morning, and welcome to episode 691 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hello. Many of you watched the first few rounds of the amateur draft last night, and we will bring you some hard-hitting analysis of who won every round and what the best picks were in roughly five years from now. We will get around to that <laughs> when we actually know the answers to those questions. Right now, we wanted to take a, a slightly more effectively wild approach to talking about the draft. And you've probably heard a lot in recent days about draft boards and area scouts and cross-checkers and just how much scouting, labor, and manpower goes into the draft and probably you haven't heard that much about the analytics side of the draft because that's maybe a more more recent addition to how teams draft players. It's not talked about so much, but we wanted to talk about that with someone who did that, who worked on that for many years. He is Chris Long. He was the Padres senior quantitative analyst from 2004 to 2013, long time, and consulted for the Padres and many, many teams in many sports, including the Sonoma Stompers. So he's a friend of the show and the team. Hi, Chris. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Good. So I want to read a quote, which was in the Joe Sheehan newsletter yesterday. And Joe was writing about how he's kind of just butted out of amateur draft analysis, as Sam and I have. We were never really in it. Because even though we're interested and we realize it's very important, it's just not our area of expertise. And Joe wrote, the draft is for scouts and the people who love them, an area where analysts, people like me who work at a remove, have little to contribute. There was a time when I thought performance analysis, stats, could drive scouting, but I no longer think they can. You evaluate amateur baseball players by their skills, by their bodies, by their physical projection, by their health. And yes, by soft factors like ability to take direction, to learn, to work through obstacles. So in your experience, how true is that statement? Uh, I mean, I would disagree with it. I would, uh, you know, it, scouting is a very, very important part of the process, but you can't, you know, you can't ignore any information you have about the players. I mean, that's just, uh, you're just, you know, putting yourself at a big disadvantage. Um, and I, I found it to be extremely helpful. I mean, even if you don't use the analysis as part of the actual picking of the players, it still helps you tremendously in just narrowing down who the scouts need to go take a look at. Mm-hmm. Because they, you have a, you know, finite number of scouts and, uh, they can only see so many games. Uh, so you have limited resources and at the very least you can, you know, optimize that. So if I'm looking for a, you know, a major league baseball player at the triple A level, I'll probably just look for the guy who has, um, you know, the good numbers, the good traditional numbers. Uh, if he's getting outs in the major, in the minors, in the high minors, he'll probably get out in the outs in the majors and vice versa. So, uh, when you're looking at college stats, is it kind of the same thing where you're like looking at the stats that are and sort of trying to project what they're going to be? Or is it more like a bank shot sort of a thing where you're, using the stats to build a profile of a player. You're looking for kind of particular characteristics within the stats uh, where maybe the guy doesn't have a good ERA or even a good strikeout-to-walk ratio or whatever, but maybe you're zeroing in on what that kind of player is. It, it's really it's a, it's a matter of trade-offs. 
Like if you have a pitcher that throws really hard, I mean, you're willing to deal with like a higher walk rate, you know, and, and other issues because you have something that's foundationally good. And so he projects to be a, a stronger prospect because he has something that most pitchers don't have. And then, you know, hopefully you can work with it or, you know, work, work uh, with him enough that you can lower that walk rate a bit. Uh, maybe he can just stop throwing 99 miles an hour and just, you know, take it down a notch and still uh, uh, have a, uh, an above average fastball. And then suddenly, you know, he's hitting his, his spots in the zone. So it's really a question of trade-offs. I mean, a higher strikeout rate for hitters, that's okay if you have more power. You know, you can deal with a lighter hitter so long as they're, you know, a plus defender or they are a good defender at a, a premium position. So it's really, it's a, it's a question of trade-offs. Younger players, you can accept worse performance because they have more growth. So it is, it is complicated. You're trading off this and that, and that's what the scouts are doing. And whether or not they realize it, they're putting all this together when they give an overall evaluation, as opposed to breaking down the tools individually. So what percentage of your work hours as the head of the Padres stat department, which maybe when you started was just you, I don't know, um, but how how much time did you spend on the amateur draft and and at what point of the year did you start ramping up for that? I would say it was probably overall a good third. And um, it really started ramping up roughly a month before games you know, would start. Mm-hmm. You, know, you wanted to make preparations because there's always returning players. Like who are the best returning players, the best uh, you know, freshmen and sophomores or, or JC players that are going to be back this year? Just so the scouts can have like a head start, gather, you know, biographical information, talk to coaches, you know, talk to the other people they know who might have information about the players. I mean, you don't want to go see a guy who has some background issues and you're not going to draft him anyway. So there's no point in going to even see him play mm-hmm. if uh, you can eliminate him immediately. And did you start working on the draft when you started working for the Padres? Was it immediate? Was it unusual for a, a stat person to be working on the draft at that time? Was that a, a tough sell? Did you kind of have to, uh, you know, persuade people that you should be involved in that process? Or were you brought on to do that from the start? I mean, I, I started working on it immediately. For me, it was uh, it has always been the most exciting part of baseball from an internal perspective, because if you do well in the draft, you know, the organization is going to do well. Um, and if you fail in the draft, the organization is pretty much toasted. So, and the complexity is just, you know, astonishing because you're dealing with so many players, uh, so many variables, so many schools, so many different levels of play, so many different parks. It is just, um, you know, the closest thing you're going to get to working on a very big complex problem on that you know, on that pre-major league level, you know, anything below major league level. Uh, it's really as complex as it gets. So, yeah, the the very first draft was, you know, we had data, and uh, I, you know, I put together some crude stuff. And for me, uh, the top two players were Chase Headley and Alex Gordon, and uh, Jacoby Ellsbury was uh, the other, other guy that I really liked, along with uh, Brett Gardner. So 
you know, they've uh, turned out to be pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that was um, all in all. I mean, even the very first draft, it, it helped. It was, uh, you know, it started out as more of a guideline. Um, what players are interesting, if they're doing something interesting, you know, what's the explanation? And then it evolved into more predictive, especially once um, Sandy Alderson and Paul DePodesta, you know, became part of the organization. Then it then it became much bigger. Mm-hmm. And how big a part of the decision to draft Headley was the analytics? Would he have been a Padre regardless? Did all the scouts love him too, and you were just confirming that they should love him? Or did you bump him up the draft board? He got bumped up the draft board just enough that we, we were able to get him. I mean, he was going to be gone like the next pick. So he, he got bumped up just enough. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, though, in a, in a broader sense, how much did you feel that you were listened to? And, and how frustrating was it when you sometimes felt like you weren't listened to, if that ever came up? And, um, and I guess what lessons did you learn about making yourself heard? Yeah, it, it, it's it, it really comes down to your communication skills, and uh, that took me like a very long time to learn. You know, like when I came in, it was like, oh, everybody's gonna sit down at the table, everybody's gonna talk and, and come up with ideas and discuss the ideas, and then make a decision as to what's the the best idea and go with that. That's just not the way it works at all. Uh, it's you know very much. People have to be comfortable with you. They have to be comfortable with how you're saying things to them. You know, it has to be something they can relate to given their experience. I mean, these are people that have been in baseball for decades, you know, some of them 30, 40 years and, uh, they, they understand things in a particular way and they understand things very well in that way. And just trying to get them to suddenly start you know, thinking th- about things differently is is asking a lot of anybody. Uh, and that's that's a lesson that took me, unfortunately, too long. Um, should have shouldn't have taken me as long as it did to to figure out. So, I mean, it really is communication, and you know, you'll get listened to if you can explain things in a way that uh, people can relate to. Obviously, it's important that the GM listen to you uh, if you're going to be heard. But did you find that you had to sort of work the whole room did you find that you had to kind of convince everybody at that table so that you would have maybe more credibility and it wouldn't seem uh like you were outside of the kind of mainstream at that table i mean there's certainly there were people in the organization that i could talk to i could you know, we could relate to each other much better uh, and like for example sandy alderson and paul de podesta very much you know similar kind of thinkers Grady Fuson was a was a relatively, you know, easy person to relate to. He, I don't know, that's not what I saw in the totally accurate Moneyball movie. Yeah, that, that that's not right. So, <laughs> yeah, the, the Moneyball movie didn't didn't get Grady Fuson. You know, I really did him a, a real injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's he's not, you know, like me, but he he, he understands things in his own way. You know, similar ideas. But just expressed differently, so uh, he was um, he was an easier guy to talk to. You know, there's there's a lot of history behind the baseball draft. You know, a lot of I guess you can call them biases, but biases can be positive and biases can be negative. I mean, if it's if it's a 
a true bias, it helps you. And if it's, if it's, if it's an incorrect bias, it's going to hurt you. So you, there are, there are both of them, you know, and you have to understand when a scout is like really loves a player. I mean, there, there's usually something to that because they have this, this huge amount of experience and, uh, you know, you really have to understand why they love a player so much. Whereas when a scout is kind of going with his experience, but in a softer way, you know, then it helps to be a little skeptical. And what did you find were the biases that maybe the numbers could help to correct? Definitely, you know, players coming from a smaller school, Mm -hmm. there's a bias against certain defensive positions. Uh, First baseman, left fielders, and those guys were, you know, defensively limited, so they had, like, real nowhere to go if they couldn't play the positions. But surprisingly, second basemen, you know, were a position looked at very skeptically because they're viewed as, well, you're already playing second base, so you're just a failed shortstop. Right. I mean, why aren't you a shortstop in college, you know? So somebody who's already a second baseman is kind of viewed as, well, is he going to have to be, you know, moved to third base? And if he gets moved to third base, I mean, is the bat really good enough to be a third baseman? So there's a bias against a second baseman as well. But, you know, shorter, fatter, anybody that looks strange, mm-hmm. bow-legged, you know, players that just don't look like major leaguers. Mm-hmm. Did, did you, did, I'm just curious if you ever put your quantitative brain into, like, I, I mean, it, it sounds absurd to think that bow-leggedness would you know, be a significant predictor of baseball talent. But, uh, you know, as I think we've learned over the, you know, the years, some of the things that uh, we thought were just old school uh, nonsense have turned out to have some wisdom to them. Did you ever test uh, like bow-leggedness or anything, <laughs> <laughs> anything, you know, like that? Did I mean, you had access. I, I think Ben and I and everybody at BP is at some point, you know, dreamed of a world where we had access to thousands and thousands of scouting reports and we could look to see whether certain buzzwords that we think of as nonsense words might actually be predictive of something. If, you know, if every scouting report on a guy who has a weak handshake, uh, that guy turns out to be either drafted 10 rounds too late or 10 rounds too early, uh, it'd be telling. And you had access to thousands of scouting reports. Yeah. Did you ever wonder about any of that scouting hoo-ha? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, if I were in charge of it and doing it from the ground up, uh, I mean, everything is, is, has been done the way it's been done for so long. You know, the, the tools are the same and the scales are the same and what the, what the, the scouts evaluate are the same. It's, it's something they're very comfortable with. But there's actually, there's a, uh, quite a few of what the scouts are required to evaluate and report on. It turns out to be mostly noise. There's some things that the scouts do very well. And there's some things that you really shouldn't, you know, really waste your time asking about because I mean, nobody can really tell. I mean, a scout can look at a guy and they can tell if he's athletic. They can tell if he's fluid. They can tell, you know, how, they can just see how he looks, how he moves. But when you start asking, you know, asking things about like even defense starts to get tricky because, you know, what a scout is really evaluating is mostly the athleticism at that point because they're not going to see a player make many defensive plays you know are they going to see him one game two game three games i mean how many balls is 
the center fielder are actually going to get to. Um, and is that like a real measure? Um, that, that limited look, is that really going to tell you? Or is the scout just basically watching the player run, you know, you know, watching it, how fast he is, uh, looking at his arm, how strong it is? Is that what he's really evaluating? So we always hear about, you know, area scouts, they spend the whole year traveling and looking at players, and then maybe they can go in the draft and not get a single player that they right. recommended or wanted. And, and it's a big deal if you can, you know, get an area scout a player. And was it similar for you when you're sitting in the draft room? Are you just really hoping to get a guy? There's a guy that you really love. You think the stats make him undervalued or, you know, show that he's undervalued. And you're just dead set on getting that guy. And if you recall, you know, any instances of those guys in any particular years, whether they worked out well or worked out terribly, I'd be interested in hearing about those too. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like every, every year you go in and there's like these guys that are pushed, you know, way far down the board. And it's like, you know, this guy's numbers are great. I mean, you should just take a chance on him. It could be players just, also higher up, um, and when when you start liking players that you know might be uh, fourth round, third round, you know, and above, that starts to get really difficult. It's it's easy to convince somebody to take a chance on a guy in the twenty second round. Yeah, much harder to convince somebody to take a guy in the fourth round. And forget about the first round because that's like those are the picks that uh, the scouting director's career could depend on. If he screws up that first round pick just on, on any kind of consistent basis, he, he could, that's his job. So, I mean, is he going to trust some guy just walking in with a spreadsheet, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to help, you know, help potentially help him with his career or is he just going to go with what he knows? So, so is there anyone you championed that turned out really well or turned out badly because you got him and it turned out that there was something about him that wasn't captured in the numbers. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not fair for me to just, you know, give you names of guys that I liked that, um, turned out great. <laughs> right. I mean, there, there, it goes both ways. Um, yeah, I like to at least imagine that uh, overall it was a, it was a, it was a, you know, a, a solid positive, like the 2008 draft was, uh, I thought was, you know, turned out well for the Padres. It, it was just unfortunate we didn't sign Jason Kipnis. Mm. Um, he was a big time, you know, performance guy out of Arizona State. Um, absolutely. If you, if you look at it, his performance, absolutely tremendous. You know, everything that you wanted in a player, you know, hit for average, took walks, didn't strike out, um, excessively hit for power at speed. Uh, he was a center fielder at Arizona State. He was later moved to second base. Of course, also, I liked Alan Dykstra, same draft. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Alan just had a tremendous power, lots of walks, uh, you know, relative to strikeouts. And, uh, yeah, he didn't work out. And he, um, you know, it's kind of difficult to, to kind of point out exactly why certain players succeed and why others fail. I mean, Allen was like a tall guy. He uh, had maybe a, a longer swing. Um, but also, he it turned out he had a medical condition, mm. which was um, vascular necrosis, which I, I think is the same thing that ended Bo Jackson's career. Mm. 
And I, I think in the end, though, it, the vascular necrosis actually didn't hurt him. Uh, he just uh, didn't quite blossom into that player. I mean, his minor league performance was was good. You know, he I think he has a career 400 plus on base percentage in the minors. Made it to the majors for a brief period of time, the Rays, but you know, never became a, a solid everyday major leaguer. Whereas, of course, Jason Kipnis. He's turned out to be basically the second best player in that draft. Mm-hmm. And how different would, say, the top of your draft board look compared to a scout's draft board? I mean, were there regularly guys that you would have very low in the draft that every scout loved? Or was there generally a lot of agreement regardless of the approach that you use? Yeah, I would, I would say it was probably more disagreement than agreement. You know, it was, for example, somebody like Nick Schmidt versus Todd Frazier. And I was always, if there was like a position player that I considered to be a low risk with a good ceiling, to me, I always loved taking those players, um, you know, versus even a, uh, especially just like in kind of a average pitcher, you know, not, not, nobody that was like, dazzling you just get if you if you can actually nail uh like an above average hitter in the draft they're just going to return more value most likely you know lower injury risk uh they you know they they just don't have the same kind of issues that you have with pitchers i mean if you hit the right pitcher you know chris sale i mean that's that's tremendous too but Mm -hmm. it's just harder to do that uh, unless they're just, I mean, Chris Sale was really, really good in college. I mean, he was amazing. So, um, he was actually my, uh, he was right behind Bryce Harper for me. Um, his, you know, he was up to basically close to 100 miles an hour, 13 strikeouts per nine, one walk per nine. I mean, the performance was just ridiculous. Um, as well as the velocity. He just was really tall and he weighed like 80 pounds. So. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Oh man, was he, he just, he just, you know, he just looked like a strong breeze would just break him in half. Mm-hmm. So, but man, he is, uh, he's been great. Yeah. So two things. One thing we've talked about in the past on this show is how well, how poorly one would do if, if one used only publicly available draft rankings, say. Um, so, you know, you, Take Baseball America and Keith Law and Kylie McDaniel and you you get a consensus wisdom of crowd sort of thing from all of those rankings. And of course, all of those rankings are informed by what people with teams tell tell those writers. So would you be the worst team? Would you be the median team? Would you be above average? So that's one question. The other is it's, you know, probably a false dichotomy to, to say stats rankings versus scouts rankings i'm sure you combine them and maybe we will ask you about that but if you used only your spreadsheet essentially uh would you do how much worse would you do if at all than than a purely scouting based ranking yeah it's an interesting question you know the the thing about the draft is it's basically like a zero sum process so for every Winner in the draft, there's there's probably a loser, uh, a team that could have picked that guy that that didn't. Um, you know, for example, Mike Trout. There were 
you know, basically uh, 20 or so teams that are losers because they didn't take Mike Trout. Uh, and he turned out to be, you know, one of the best players of all time. But the question is, were the Angels smart or were the Angels lucky? Uh, and that is a question you can only answer if you're privy to their internal process. So it's really not a, not a, uh, a question that can be answered. I mean, you, you could look at the returns teams have gotten over many years. Um, that's probably the best thing you can do. But it's really kind of like that internal process that gives you the most information. How, as an organization, did we rank these players and how did they turn out? Where did we make our mistakes? And were they mistakes that we could avoid in the future? Or are they just mistakes that nobody could avoid? But I think an answer to your question, I think if you went with like the publicly available rankings, I think you'd probably do just about the median. Mm-hmm. And I can't give you a hard answer to that, but I think you're basically going to do just about uh, average. Uh-huh. So, um, I mean, maybe that's not a something that teams would be comfortable thinking about, that on average, you know, they could spend $20 and <laughs> use a website or whatever. Right. And, and, and not spend, uh, six or seven million dollars on, um, you know, the expenses or, and, and plus the, anything else that it takes to kind of actually get the draft to, to actually go through that whole process. Mm-hmm. And it's also a question of, I mean, you want your own guys looking at these players. You don't want to trust somebody you don't know. You know, again, it does come down to your job and your career. Yeah. And, and if you went with the purely stats based rankings, do you think you would be competitive? I guess you'd have some embarrassing misses, probably, but um, yeah. but overall, yeah, it, it wouldn't actually. It would probably be pretty ugly because you know uh, the one thing you absolutely need is like, for example, like pitcher velocity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely have to have that. I mean, guys can get away with stuff uh, in college that they're not going to get away with in the minors or the majors. So. Um, and I, you, you need to know their, their velocity, also their pitch mix. I mean, do they have like an above average, uh, off speed pitch or is it just, are they just getting by with blowing guys away with their fastball? Are they just, do they have, uh, there's like one player, um, out of, uh, New Mexico, Danny Ray Herrera. I don't know if you remember that guy or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danny Ray. I mean, he was a real short, um, starter for uh, New Mexico. Uh, unbelievable pitcher for New Mexico and that's one of the hardest pitching environments in in college but he had a 80 change he basically had this one pitch that was major league level you know one of the, the one of the best changeups in baseball and that's how he's able to do it so uh he was taken in like the 44th round and he ended up as a major leaguer for uh for a while until he had some actually off-field issues unfortunately i mean that's the kind of stuff you know, you need to know if he just was had junk that wasn't going to play at the major league level. You know, he's not a prospect. If he just has that one pitch, that's a major league pitch. You know, there's a chance you'd be pretty. Yeah, you generally speaking, you're going to be pretty embarrassed. I mean, the, the guys at the very top are going to going to be good, but then very quickly it goes wrong. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, every player whose name you've said so far. Was college player, is it just completely hopeless to apply this stuff to high school? Particularly, it seems like uh, I hear about how they're all playing year-round in travel ball against elite competition, uh, scores of games a year. Is there 
anything remotely useful out of that stuff, or is the record keeping too bad? And is it are they simply too far away from the majors for it to matter that much? Well, you have other information, especially now. I mean, you have you know basically you're going to have workouts or you're going to have showcases, and they're going to have like a portable TrackMan unit. So I mean, the amount of information you have available now is just you know leaps and bounds better than it than it used to be. So considering all that information, absolutely. I mean, you know, knowing how fast you know the spin is on a pitcher's ball, you know, fastball, that's that's incredibly valuable, as opposed to having to just watch it and trying to guess based on how it breaks and things like that. There's, you know, the high school statistics in general. Um, they don't play as many games. The that competition varies dramatically. Uh, record keeping isn't so good. But even, even so, my, I mean, this, this is just my opinion. You absolutely want to look at their performance numbers. Like if you have a high school hitter that is mediocre, I mean, you better have a really good reason to draft a high school hitter that can't hit. You know, there's got to be something amazing about that kid. I mean, it only gets harder as you go through the minors and, and up to the majors. So typically, you know, the best, pro, you know, the, the best prospects in high school, their, their numbers are ridiculous. Uh, like Javier Baez, I mean, he had something like uh, three strikeouts his whole year, you know, <laughs> as a senior. And that's it, the Javier yeah, Baez I know. No strikeouts. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but that's the thing. I mean, if you are striking out a lot in high school, you don't really have a chance. But if you're not striking out in high school, there's a chance. Oh, my um, gosh. He, he hit 771 with 22 <laughs> homers and 83 at-bats. And 20 doubles. Half of yeah, them, that, more than half that, of his played appearances, were extra bases. That's <laughs> that's exactly what you tend to see from the guys that, uh, that are real big prospects in high school. They're just He slugged 877. <laughs> he slugged 1,048 as a sophomore. So yeah, that that just you know, uh, it's not just him. I mean, you can look at um, some of the other you know really great high school prospects. They all had just ridiculous numbers um, because they were so much better than anybody they were facing, and that's why they were taken in the, in the draft, and that's why they were top rounders. But I mean, if you're if you're looking at a high school guy. In one of those early rounds, and he's not hitting like that, or he's not like pitching ridiculously. I mean, there's got to be something in your mind as to how he's going to develop. You know, why do I think he's worth giving a million dollars to, even though he's striking out like 25% of the time in high school? You know, what is so amazing about this kid? And it could be just pure raw athleticism. Maybe he's more of a football player than a baseball player. Adding every every layer you add onto that story makes that that player riskier and riskier, and you have to keep that in mind. He also walked in more than a quarter of his plate appearances. His his on base percentage was eight forty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, last last question I have for you is that um, I somebody recently wrote something for me, and then we didn't run it, but we might someday about. Sort of like looking at how uh, health is by far, like by far the biggest indicator of how successful a draft pick is. That uh, really, it, it almost doesn't matter if you turn out to be good or bad. Really what matters 
in the aggregate is whether your guys turn out to be healthy or not healthy. And that really seems like something that would have the potential, even at the high school level, to be a rich place for quantitative analysis uh, to take place, uh, particularly if you can figure out uh, what a player's schedule, playing schedule was from the time he was, you know, 12 years old on. Um, so how much, how much information is a team able to gather on that sort of a thing? And, uh, would you say that it is kind of underweighted, uh, at this point, or are teams really putting a, a ton of effort into trying to predict which 17 year old is, is going to have a, a bad labrum or a torn UCL four years down the road? I mean, it is, it is a part of the draft. They do carefully look at video and, uh, rightly or wrongly, they're, they're judging kind of injury likelihood. The problem with it currently is it's not really scientific. You know, that, that's something that's, they're, that's, they're trying to change. But, I mean, how would you even begin to approach that? Because you, you know, you, you have to carefully record all this information over a very long period of time. E- even then, you know, there's going to be some, uh, you know, selection bias because you're only looking at a particular kind of player anyway. You're not looking at like all players. With, with pitchers, it is really like one of the holy grails of baseball. If you can only draft pitchers or if you know which pitchers not to draft that are, you know, higher injury risk, that's incredibly valuable. If you know how to prevent pitchers from, you know, becoming injured once they're in your system, again, that's just incredibly valuable. There are, there are companies that are working on products that I think are going to be helpful, like uh, biomechanics, like a company like Modus, for example. You might end up getting data from them that might really help you with that. But it's just, it is just so incredibly complex. It comes down to so many factors that you can't even see with, the, with your eye. The elasticity of the soft tissue, you know, the tendons and ligaments, uh, how they're attached, like where they're attached, you know, the, again, the, the workload these players have gone through, even back when they were like 10 years old, you don't know. So it's just incredibly, incredibly complicated. But I mean, hopefully at some point you're going to be able to do more with it. And it just has the potential to be hugely valuable. I mean, not just to the teams, but to the players, certainly in the best interest of agents, anybody involved with the sport. Nobody wants to see a great player have his career cut short due to some injury, you know, like Mark Pryor. That, that was just a real tragedy that he wasn't able to pitch more. How much of your work was scouting scouts? I assume that you had to incorporate or wanted to incorporate scouting reports into the numbers that you had, but you must have had to decide how much to weight a scout's opinion, you know, can determine whether you should trust him or whether maybe he rates a certain skill more more generously than another scout would or then he does some other skill. So how much of your work was doing that and generally how how does one do that? And for for me it mostly was, you know, this is what based just based on their performance. I mean I incorporated some of the information from the scouts. For me, like the most important things were power ceiling, you know, what defensive position the scout saw the player as ultimately. The velocity was one thing that basically at that time you only had from the scout. Uh, they had to sit there with their radar gun. So that's, you know, now it's a little bit different. Uh, there are, you know, kind of, I guess there are companies out now that are 
kind of recording this information and there are other services too that you can actually get the, the velocities from them. But so that's basically what I did. You could certainly go much further with that. And you know, I did some more work along those lines, but it was nothing that was actually used with the draft. Ultimately, it's, it's all information. I mean, the best system is going to take all of that and put it together and uh, give you, this is like the organization's belief. And I think maybe like the, that's probably like the approach the Houston Astros take. Maybe the, the St. Louis Cardinals still do that, but that just is not the way it's done in baseball. I know it's, it's more of if it's used at all, it's what do the, you know, what do the numbers say? Are there guys that we should rule out? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it is, uh, the way I would do it is, is very different than the way most teams do it. Can I give you guys one more? Sure. In his senior year, <laughs> Javier Baez singled more, doubled more, homered more, and walked more than he was ever made out. <laughs> so he had more of each of those than he had outs. Yeah. It was also uh, Jeff Decker, too, was another another uh, crazy uh, high school hitter. I mean, these just, you know, you think you, you go to high school, there's always like one guy in the team who's better than the rest. So there's some guy in uh, the county who's like the best baseball player. And then there's these guys. You know, these guys are not just on one level higher. They're just like stratospheric. Just they're they're crazy. And that's kind of what it, that's the kind of talent it takes to become a major leader. And lastly, how many teams would you say consider themselves above average at drafting? You know, because, I mean, people tend to think, tend to rate themselves more highly than maybe they should. And, and I'm curious because, you know, how many teams would, would trade like, you know, whatever the team with the best reputation as a drafting team is, whether it's the Cardinals or, or whoever, how many teams would actually, you know, if they could trade their draft board for that team's draft board, how many teams would do that? Or are, you know, are they all convinced that they have the best scouts and they trust their opinion more than any other teams or even the consensus? So that's, I would, I would guess that they all think they're above average. <laughs> I mean, they, they might, you know, say, well, you don't, have quite as many scouts as this other team does so so maybe they have a bit of an advantage there but you know they're i'm sure those scouting directors all go into the first day of the draft thinking i'm better than most of these other guys i you know that's human nature yeah there's there's you know it's just it's such an interesting process and there's still i think a lot of tradition in it um that is changing and, you know, that does make scouts uncomfortable, uh, which is com- completely understandable. Mm-hmm. I guess it's hard to be proved wrong, really, <laughs> that you're not above average because there's so much randomness that goes into it or player development that goes into it that it's yeah. hard to say. And and then, you know, that the personnel, the scouts change and the front office changes and you can always just say that it was a small sample. It usually was, I guess. But <laughs> You know, actually, the worst thing that goes on is your best scout, they, he stops being a scout. He gets promoted. Uh-huh. So you take like a great area scout who is tremendously valuable in that role, and then he moves up to, you know, regional cross checker, uh, you know, national cross checker, 
scouting director, and then maybe he gets promoted out of scouting entirely. And it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you have uh, someone that can add that much value to the organization, keep them as a scout, but you just are going to have to pay them what they're worth. Mm -hmm. And that's not the career path in baseball. You get promoted. So it's it's unfortunate. Jeff Decker's high school stats, 565, 688, 1202 was his slash line. And he, he pitched, too. Did he pitch? I wouldn't be surprised. That's on this page, too. Is but that senior year or, or cumulative? It says 48 games played, but it says career totals, that, too. I think that 1202 is probably just his slugging. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I didn't think his, his OPS was that low. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Maybe I'm looking at the wrong thing. But whoever this is pitched 145 innings or something with a 1.2 ERA. But I mean, it could be him. I mean, you know, some of these guys were, you know, great pitchers and hitters, like uh, AJ Reed, you know, last year in college. So um, it does happen. Hang on, are you wondering whether you found the wrong Jack Decker? <laughs> I'm wondering whether uh... Jack is a pretty unique spelling. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably not it. It's probably not the wrong Jeff Decker. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing your insight and stories. Uh, Chris is on Twitter at Octonion. He is uh, one of the best public resources for sabermetrics, for all kinds of sports analytics and math questions and math ben, help. Ben, mm-hmm. you found his junior and sophomore years combined. Ah, not his senior. His senior year, he appears to have had a 1472 slug. <laughs> okay, not with, bad. Right, not quite by as levels, but uh, pretty good. 700 on base percentage. Well, maybe it's ballpark effects. You got to adjust. Yeah. So, yeah, right. Uh, so Chris often shares lots of free, interesting data that you can check out, and he helps people out all the time if you have questions. So find him on Twitter. Thank you, Chris. Oh, thanks, and uh, good luck this week. Thank you. Uh, so you can send us emails for the email show at podcast at baseballperspectus.com, Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, and our sponsor is the Play Index. Go to baseballreference.com and use the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>